0: Welcome, all of you, to this week's CCL training program. It's a weekly webinar of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters like you and I with access to in-depth training opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host tonight, Brett Sees, and we're going to be joined by Citizens Climate International's Executive Director, Joe Robertson, for a review of what happened at COP28. It's going to be a training that will provide a summary of the main impacts, takeaways, and results of this past gathering of the un conference of parties in dubai and for those interested we have put again a link in the chat where you can follow more from joe's debrief i would highly rank joe as um, not only a dear friend but one of the most interesting individuals that i've ever met and in his daily work as citizens climate international executive director joe does policy analysis coordinates strategy to train and empower volunteers throughout the world and help support developing those groups abroad. He leads our engagement with Citizens Climate International, with the United Nations, the World Bank, the IMF, the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition, and many other multilateral institutions. We are in for a real treat tonight. It's such an honor to have you spare time and join us. So I will pass it to you, Joe.
1: Thank you, Brett, Uh, thank you for the kind words and thank you all for joining uh, some of your old friends. It's great to see you here. Um, So, the first thing I want to do is share just a few, you know, intended outcomes here. We'll talk a little bit about impacts from COP28, a little bit about the CCI perspective, um, and a little bit about how this affects CCL advocacy, potentially. Um, So, first of all, just a quick look at our engagement with intergovernmental processes. We try to have fun with it, as you can see. Um, You see uh, our good friend Mike Tarangwa over there in the upper left at UN headquarters. You can see Citizens Climate was at the table with Italy, Canada and others, including the vulnerable 20 group of countries. Uh, That circle on the right of smiling faces is part of our team at the COP28. Um, You can see on the upper right there, Isatis is doing her thing on the panel, uh, advocating for climate civics in the global arena, Um, that's just a brief look at the diverse areas of work that have led to our ability to engage in this process the way that we do. Um, The areas where we contribute to global policy, we emphasize the need for civic participation at the local, national, and at the supranational level. Um, We emphasize, of course, the need for pollution pricing as an accountability measure and a transition strategy. we emphasize the need for constructive cooperation. Uh, the, the border adjustment as part of a fee and dividend plan is all about that. It's really an invitation to constructive cooperation to put aside the race to the bottom strategy and, and go ahead towards a sustainable future together. That's a big part of our international engagement. Um, and the right to be safe. We We often think about and talk about human rights in the CCI context in part because there isn't a global constitution, but international law is founded on a number of core principles, including some of the founding docu- documents of the United Nations. Um, one of them is the UN Charter, the other is the UN Declaration on, on uh, Human Rights. And it is essential that international law ultimately align with the rights, the equity, the justice principles, the well being of people and the primacy of people over power. So we often talk about rights in that context and we think about the climate challenge as being partly about the right to be safe. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. So when we talk about civics in the intergovernmental space, in the international meetings between governments, to talk about climate change. Um, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change agreed in 1992 in Rio Article six of that that convention, that treaty, and Article 12 of the Paris Agreement from 2015, both talk about six areas of engagement, public information, training, capacity building. Um, And that has become known as Action for Climate Empowerment. Partly about empowering populations, but it's also about people empowering their government. And it's about cities empowering nations to be able to be more ambitious. Action for climate empowerment is essentially, from our perspective, another way of saying climate civics. And you can see Isathias and myself sitting there as part of this open dialogue. Other team members have joined similar meetings. We strongly advocate for these types of engagements between stakeholders, stakeholder networks, governments, and international agencies like the UNFCCC, the World Bank, and others. Um, It's important because when you have stakeholders at the table, and I think many of you know this from your work as CCL volunteers and talking to uh, public officials, when you have people whose self-interest is just the general interest, the human interest, the interest in a better world, the conversations get better. They get more reasonable, they get more values driven, they get more ambitious public officials want to try and solve problems in that context in a way that they don't always when it's just them in the room. Um, And so we strongly advocate for climate civics as one of the key levers of climate policy. And you can see in that room, you have momentum in that direction. Increasingly, even governments that don't really allow political engagement around who holds office are interested in having political engagement around how to solve climate change because they recognize that ultimately everybody in society will live with the consequences and must know how to implement the solutions and understand why political choices are being made. So more and more we see an interest in further engagement. Um, The Paris principles, you'll see Paris is an acronym uh, spelled by the first letters of each of these. Uh, principles. Uh, The Paris principles were something that Citizens Climate Lobby volunteers working in a carbon pricing working group came up with in 2014. They became part of a document that we shared at the UN uh, Climate Action Summit in September 2014. They ultimately became part of the background of work that led to the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition. The underlying reason for putting these principles together was that we recognized that Ian Dividend has a lot of virtues in terms of policy efficiency, in terms of efficacy and outcomes, in terms of efficient benefits to local communities and households, and in terms of facilitating international cooperation in a way that other policies might not do as straightforwardly. Um, we realized that those benefits of and dividend weren't necessarily well understood by other carbon pricing advocates. And we also recognize that other carbon pricing advocates often disagreed about virtually everything in the carbon pricing policy discussion. So you had people who want cap and trade. You had people who want emissions trading, but not strong caps. You have people who want lots of offsetting people who don't. And then you have people who want carbon taxes, who can't agree on what the level should be. So The carbon pricing working group set about figuring out if we could create a list of principles that would allow all of these disparate voices to say, a good carbon pricing policy should have these qualities. And we were successful. Never once did we have a single person object to any part of these five principles. They fostered really constructive conversations. And in Lima in 2014 and in Paris in 2015, they were important in helping the advocates for carbon pricing fitting into the Paris Agreement, understand how they could talk towards that future without having to say those words of carbon tax or emissions trading, which were not going to be allowed by certain countries. and so I'll come back to why that's so important in a few minutes, but that that's background for how we try to engage on carbon pricing. We try to help countries figure out how they can get closer to what fee and dividend would do, even if they're not ultimately going to use that policy itself. The right to resilience is a new report that we put out just before, in fact, right at the beginning of the COP28. Um, it focuses on the right to be safe, as I mentioned before, the right to public incentives that build value instead of destroying it, the right to local economies that support climate resilience. We'll look at that in a minute when I talk about loss and damage, um, the right to early warning and disaster response and the right to participate, which of course is always on our minds. That report is at this web address at the bottom um, and Brett will share uh, the slides and that link with you later. so Earth Diplomacy Leadership is a collaboration that, that CCI established with the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. They teach diplomats how to be diplomats. And they were in agreement with us that there is a need for better understanding how other aspects of civic engagement outside of the diplomatic realm, outside of the diplomat negotiations actually influence whether or not climate policies can succeed. And so together we crafted this series of workshops that we now do before the mid-year negotiations and the annual uh, COP negotiations. This past series of pre-COP sessions gave us a series of insights that we knew were going to be central. One was nationally determined contributions, that's contributions to global climate response under the Paris Agreement will need to be upgraded. They're nowhere close to being good enough in total, even if they were perfectly implemented. Um, and that ongoing that process is now ongoing of upgrading. We knew that operational tools, systems, standards, and incentives are needed. It can't just be agreements, it can't just be legislation and spending alone won't be enough. We need tools, systems, standards, and incentives that go across the economy and help people do what they need to do. The costs of adaptation are accelerating everywhere. In every part of the world, uh, adaptation costs are rising. We don't always talk about them as adaptation costs, but anyone who owns a home knows that they're starting to have to pay some of those costs. Anyone who runs a small town, especially in coastal areas or in uh, areas that produce food as their main economic activity, all of those people know that they're dealing with these rising costs. Um, Some countries are being deeply destabilized by them already. Involuntary displacement due to climate change is accelerating across the world now. It's not right, I think, to use the fear of migration as a way to induce climate uh, response, but it is important to recognize that the big immigration crises that have been affecting different parts of the world, South Asia, Central Asia, the Middle East, Europe, North America in recent years are tiny, tiny, compared to what will eventually come if climate change continues to advance. What's interesting is that in Dubai, governments began to talk about that in a much more serious way than they had before. They didn't go as far as saying, we're going to come to a new refugee convention to recognize climate refugees but they did start talking very seriously about what is often euphemistically called human mobility. When we talk about the future of human mobility, what they really are talking about is people crossing borders, people displaced by climate change and conflict. Um, The majority of the least developed countries are facing debt distress. Depending on how exactly you measure debt distress or being on the brink of debt distress, In theory, debt distress means that your country is about to go bankrupt. It means that public services will start to fail. It means you won't be able to borrow more money to keep funding your government. But being on the brink can mean a lot of things. Depending how you measure that, in 2022 and 2023, between 50 and 90 countries were in that condition. And we are not at the moment in a situation where it looks like we're going to come out of it. Some countries like the US are feeling much better in terms of where inflation is, but there are serious warning signs like low snowpack in the Northern hemisphere makes it look like 2024 is gonna be a really hard year. If it's a hard year for food and water, that means prices are going to go up. And that means that more countries will face debt distress. So this is a major constraint on how the world responds to climate change. And it's something that gets a lot of attention in international meetings. Food systems face unprecedented stresses. The low snowpack is one example of how that is. Um, and finance is the Achilles heel. That was something that was said by Rachel Kite, who's our close collaborator uh, in the Earth Diplomacy Leadership workshops uh, and very experienced in the world of climate finance policy and innovation. And the reason finance is the Achilles heel is everyone knows that ultimately, investment is needed to cause real-world activities to happen, whether they're government-related activities or private sector activities. Someone has to spend money in order for those things to happen, for people to get paid, materials to be put in place, and jobs to be done. Um, But everyone means something different by finance. Some people mean it's money for me. Some people mean it's money I don't want to give you. Some people mean it's money with strings attached. And, of course, finance itself, Is money that's borrowed and needs to be paid back and that's not always easy to engineer um, when you're talking about human need so one more point of of context going into the cop 28 in october state of the climate report was put out and it had this i think haunting sentence by the end of this century an estimated three to six billion individuals approximately one-third to one-half of the global population might find themselves confined beyond the livable region, encountering severe heat, limited food availability, and elevated mortality rates because of the effects of climate change. Consider that last year, 2023, we reached the all-time hottest global average temperature for one day that we think has happened in 125,000 years on Earth, according to the geological record. That was July 3rd. The next day was 0.98 degrees hotter globally, one full degree centigrade hotter in one day. The next day was the same, and the day after that was hotter still. So we're hitting that kind of level, and we're seeing some parts of the world that experience sudden firestorms out of nowhere. We're seeing some parts of the world that experience temperatures of 150 degrees Fahrenheit. That's not survivable uh, for very long uh, if you don't have shelter and cooling. Um, And in much of the world where these things will be happening, cooling is not that easily available. And when it is available, it is not climate friendly. So that means that in order to deal with these problems, people either need to move or we need to do things that will make climate change worse, or we need to find solutions. Um, so this is context that was very much on everybody's mind. Uh, Dubai is a kind of crossroads of the world. Uh, as much as 90% of the population was born somewhere else uh, outside the UAE. So. There's a sensitivity to what it means for people to come together from different parts of the world and how you manage that. Uh, But the interesting thing was this insight was not missed. It was discussed. It was addressed by people in negotiations conscious of the level of disruption that is on the horizon. Now, really good news from COP28. On the very first day, the, the final legal decision something that normally happens only at the very last minute, the final legal decision on creating a new fund to respond to address and overcome loss and damage is agreed in the opening plenary. This has never been done before. The opening plenary is just for statements, for formalities, for getting things started. Uh, it doesn't usually finalize a legal decision. Uh, but there had been work going into that and everybody knows it's critical um so it was agreed what happened during the cop 700 million dollars was pledged that's a lot but it's only 0.2 percent of the estimated need um four countries gave 100 million dollars or more the united states gave 17.5 million we are nowhere near being ready to respond to loss and damage in a in a genuine way for all of the people around the world who need assistance. We're going to have to re-engineer the international financial system, public and private sector, development finance, but also commercial financial entities will have to learn new ways of working. And so that learning curve is part of why it takes time. It's also part of why finance is the Achilles heel because a lot of new things have to start happening and everybody has to figure out who takes what risk first. Um, Now, the outcome of the UAE COP is called the UAE consensus, the way the Lima outcome was the Lima call to climate action, and the Paris outcome was the Paris agreement. The UAE outcome is the UAE consensus. Um, And there's a lot of questions about what does it actually commit the world to? Are we going to fix climate change, or is this just a lot of nice talk? The first thing I think that we have to acknowledge Uh, because words do matter, especially when they affect the fate of millions of people, um, is that not every country was actually present when the gavel fell, citing no objections. Uh, This is the lead negotiator for Samoa, Anne Rasmussen. She was the first person to speak after the agreement was finalized. Um, And she spoke not only for Samoa, but for the Alliance of Small Island States, These are, of course, the countries most vulnerable to temperature rise because they will disappear as the sea level rises. Um, They do not, most of them, have any kind of agreement to move to another country while remaining a nation. It's a super complicated area of international legal negotiation that has not been fully worked out. So for them, this was urgent. They need to be on board with whether or not the final outcome recognizes the need that they face and does enough to address it um they were outside conferring about what their objections would be uh when the gavel fell citing no objections so there's question about should this be called a consensus um there are however a lot of good things in the agreement and uh though the AOSIS countries objected to the way that this was finalized and objected to some of the key language in the final outcome, they essentially called for the process to become more constructive, to not do this type of thing again. And along with a lot of the observers and many of the countries who stood up and applauded after she spoke, uh, she had a standing ovation from the Plenary Hall after speaking. the kind of universal call was to say, this now puts the burden of proof on all of the countries that made this agreement. This has to be real. So the question is what is supposed to be real? Um, The UAE consensus recognizes that progress on Paris goals is too slow. So climate transformation needs to accelerate. Countries have to upgrade their national climate plans. Uh, The world must transition away from fossil fuels. There's a lot of caveat and, and qualifying language around that to make it feel like there's plenty of room for new fossil fuel development in the future. But the fact is the world must transition away from fossil fuels, it's now agreed. The importance of ensuring the integrity of all ecosystems, including in forests, the ocean, mountains, and the cryosphere. I highlight that and I have a a segment of the cryosphere behind me in in my video uh, window because that is an incredibly ambitious statement. That may be the single most ambitious statement ever agreed by the 196 countries of the COP since 1992, when they agreed to prevent dangerous climate change. Um, To preserve all ecosystems, including forests, ocean, mountains, and the cryosphere, means we have to halt global heating immediately. There's no way that that is possible unless we accelerate beyond all of the most ambitious Declared plans. Um, And I, I highlight it because it's not to say that there's cognitive dissonance. That's obvious. It's to say that that ambition is in line with the science. They recognize that importance because that's what the science is saying. Because ecosystems are carbon based life forms that sink carbon and keep it out of the atmosphere. Because unless they are robust enough, we won't have productive ecosystems on land and in ocean that provide sustenance for the world, um, and because without that, of course, we will have chaos. Um, so there's recognition in agreed international law that that's the standard, and I'll come to why that's so important in a minute. They also specifically agreed that all of this must be in line with science. Of course, people define what that means differently. Many people heard the president with his own opinions about what that means, but Opinions don't matter, science matters. In line with the science means in line with the science. It doesn't mean in line with something that science is not saying, but some people think. So it's important to keep that in mind when we parse what came out of the COP. Finally, when we think about science, the IPCC Sixth Assessment Report finds a couple of things that are very important. Above 1.5 degrees centigrade, some things will be lost that have a critical stabilizing function in the structure of the climate system. What that means is it is not so easy to go past 1.5 and come back. It's not a zero-sum kind of game where if we plant enough trees after 1.5, we will cool back down. The critical structures that could be lost could take millions of years to come back, and they rely on complex thermodynamic fluid dynamics that are not entirely predictable. We can say when the chemistry is such that we will lose them, but we cannot say when they will come back. Um, That is really important. And Then finally, we're on track to breach 1.5 before 2040, and a lot of people now think that's extremely conservative and that we will breach it much sooner. And when we say breach 1.5, we're talking about multi-decadal average. So for a lot of people, it won't be possible for us to have a multi-decadal breach before 2040. Even so, the science is saying we will get there by 2040. So there's an implicit timeline in this transition away from fossil fuels that was agreed in Dubai. And the big controversy is not that the countries put loophole language in the agreement, the big controversy is that they know what they agree, but they aren't necessarily planning to meet that mandate. Um, now our interpretation, and I think we're in good company, and I say we at CCI, is that there is a legal mandate. The global convention says that we must prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. In line with the science, and ensuring the integrity of all ecosystems. We just went through that. Obviously global heating emissions must cease. There is not any technology available right now that allows for ongoing carbon pollution to continue and for us to meet these legal mandates. So the law is telling us what we have to do. Um, Now, a lot of attention has been given to loophole language in the COP outcome where The transition is just in energy systems. Other fossil fuels will continue using. Um, And we're going to have to have transition fuels. So natural gas, go gangbusters. Go get some, go invest in it, spread it around the world. Um, Right after this agreement, there was a huge burst of new investment in future fossil fuel development and trade. Um, During the COP itself, the presidency, the, the host country met with, other oil states in order to negotiate future uh, oil contracts. Those loopholes are not legally justified. Loophole language in legislation, as many of you know, is actual legal gaps in in the legislation. A loophole is not, I put a neat sentence in there that allows me to do whatever I want. A loophole is an actual gap in the law The law is very clear, prevent climate change, 1.5, in line with the science, losing critical structures in the climate is going to be devastating. And we now know from the state of the climate that by the end of this century, the world will be in a state of real chaos if we don't act on this legal mandate. So I just want to bring everybody to that kind of focus that there is international law requiring that we act. And... The loopholes are wishes. This is this is what some people want to do who are used to getting money from pollution. And that's private sector, but it's also governments. A lot of governments depend on oil revenues to fund their activities. And they don't have an easy off-ramp. So it's not to say that they're wrong to be figuring it out in a difficult environment. They don't have all the tools they need. But when The total commitment to critical areas of funding is 0.2% of the need. You can understand how governments that depend on something that's working aren't going to just cast it aside. There has to be investment. There has to be a new way of doing business. Now, another part of the process is voluntary commitments. So beyond what countries agree legally, beyond what they do as part of their legal commitment to act on climate, there are voluntary commitments. there was a leader's declaration on food systems transformation and climate. 159 countries that are parties to the convention signed this declaration, as did two more countries that are not parties, small countries that are observers in this process. Um, 161 countries. Just three years ago, when the UN held a food systems summit, countries were not ready to sign up to the idea that food systems and climate action have to be aligned because many see them as competing some things that you do to produce more food and make food more more cheap and available are bad for the environment and bad for the climate. So there wasn't that recognition that we're going to have to figure out how they play together. Now, most of the countries have signed up to that principle. Non-state actors have also signed up to that. Um, CCI is one of the non-state actors that signed up to this call to action to help others figure out what that looks like the UAE announced what they called the Financing the Future of Food Accelerator, a way of essentially putting up some money using uh, bonds in order to de-risk investments that will be beneficial for sustainable food systems. They also put forward $30 billion um, into a new green investment fund, and there's another $31.6 billion that was put forward by multilateral development banks like the World Bank, Uh, the Global Environment Facility, um, the Green Climate Fund, et cetera. So all of that is good and it's a lot of money, but it's still not the total amount that we need to get everything moving. So here we go back to the Paris principles. Um, Price pollution, add momentum, reduce emissions, internalizing efficiencies, spread by aligning. When the Paris Agreement was agreed in 2015, Article 6 of the Paris Agreement was about international cooperation. It was also really about carbon pricing because paragraph 2 and paragraph 4 are different types of emissions trading rules and structures that allow countries to invest in someone else's forestry, for instance, in order to pollute while still reducing emissions in their accounting. Um, Paragraph 8 was non-market, meaning non-emissions trading cooperation. That means everything else, right? Every other thing countries do is non-market. Only emissions trading is market in the language of Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. So this short paragraph with three added bullet points is about integrated, holistic and balanced approaches to international cooperation to accelerate what's called, in the language of Article 6, overall mitigation of global emissions. It's about raising ambition, making the total amount of climate action more than it would otherwise be. These agreements should support mitigation, adaptation, finance, technology transfer, capacity building, but also poverty eradication and sustainable development. So it's a very ambitious segment of the Paris Agreement. And I wanna just direct attention to uh, 6.8 C, which says enable opportunities for coordination across instruments and relevant institutional arrangements. What that means in the language of international law is that even though the standard is that countries defer to what's called the convention of original jurisdiction so if there is, a convention on, on, there, there is a convention on the law of the sea, then the climate convention doesn't control the ocean, the convention on the law of the sea does. But of course, the convention on the law of the sea doesn't address climate change. And it also, until a new agreement was made last year to cover the high seas, didn't cover most of the ocean. And so what this means is countries are now agreeing We aren't just making an agreement on climate. We made that agreement on the ocean. We made an agreement on sustainable fisheries. We made an agreement on trade. We're going to bring those different agreements together and have integrity in the way that we implement. And so there's an important connection between integrated, holistic, and balanced in the first part of this article, of this paragraph, and across instruments and institutional arrangements. It means that we can start moving to the convention of highest ambition. So if the climate convention process is making better, stronger, more constructive agreements that can actually elicit action from nations, then that's the thing that nations should be looking to to implement. Um, That's a big step forward. Um, But it also does something important. It creates the opportunity for cooperation in various, very specific ways. So some non-market approaches as envisioned by Article 6.8 Which, by the way, they don't have to be governed by any body in the UNFCCC process. These are things countries do voluntarily on their own. Article 6.8 just tells countries what they should do. What would be good? What should the standard be? Um, And so here are a few uh, existing and emerging non-market approaches. There's an Africa Adaptation Acceleration Program with multiple different actors coming together to expand funding for adaptation measures in Africa. There's the Agricultural Innovation Mission for Climate, which is something that the United States and the United Arab Emirates put together um, in order to fund agricultural innovation and climate-smart agriculture. There's the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism that the European Union is uh, getting ready to activate next year. And that is, of course, already eliciting responses from other countries who recognize it is a challenge, but it is also an invitation. It's a way to start collaborating uh, more aggressively than we had anticipated before. There's an emerging good food finance facility where nonprofits, UN agencies, uh, financial institutions are coming together to figure out how you start accelerating the delivery of climate-friendly finance to small actors across value chains to make food systems work. There's something called the Global Shield, which is a partnership uh, initiated by the G7 countries, the wealthy G7 countries, and the vulnerable 20 group of countries. Also, the Climate Vulnerable Forum is part of that process. So it's the countries that are vulnerable to climate change and the wealthy countries coming together to create a mechanism to invest in climate resilience um, to support the most vulnerable being less vulnerable and to support what is sometimes referred to as social protection but in the context of climate in countries around the world that wouldn't otherwise have that benefit and then there's some concepts of things that are on the horizon are starting to emerge and in fact since we first proposed these five concepts some of the pieces have fallen into place and have started moving um, I won't go into detail about them now, but if you want more detail, that link there, 100 uh, nonmarket slash non-market will give you more detail. We're almost at the end here, but um, later this month, we're gonna do a session on the way to Baku, uh, Baku, Azerbaijan, which is in the distance there in this photo in the background is where the next COP will be. Um, we know that on the way there, We're going to have to see the mobilization of new financial commitments. We're going to have to see international finance reform, the reform of the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, but also of debt structures. So climate-sensitive and vulnerability-sensitive debt relief where countries that haven't caused climate change but are being devastated by it are not forced to pay unaffordable sums to borrow money to deal with a crisis they didn't create that will bankrupt them for centuries to come. That type of debt relief is part of what we're going to see more of. It's going to be a major subject at most intergovernmental meetings relating to finance this year. New investments in food systems for mitigation, adaptation, resilience, and sustainable development. Again, noting that issue with low snowpack, that is going to be a serious challenge. Um, Climate science data sharing is taking off. There are a number of different initiatives, including a net zero public utility for data announced at the COP, um, for basically everyone to be able to start keeping an eye on who is doing what to go in the right direction. Um, Further detailing of successful adaptation as an overarching climate resilient development goal. We often think of adaptation as something you do when things have gone wrong. But if you think of Article 7 of the Paris Agreement, which is the global goal on adaptation, Ask yourself, what happens if you set that goal as high as possible? If the, if the global goal on adaptation were that no human being and no ecosystem suffers climate damage, which would be another way of saying what the convention promised in 1992, prevent dangerous climate change. That's a better, higher goal than 1.5 degrees where we're living with a tremendous amount of damage and climate change right so the adaptation goal and how we think about what that means and how cities and countries and businesses and communities plan for that type of activity what we mean by successful adaptation isn't just a question of whether we invest wisely whether we get a good return on adaptation investment or whether we avoid so called mal adaptation It's also a question of whether we're being ambitious enough to actually use that lever of action to help solve climate change, to bring everything else down to where it needs to be so that we're innovating, decarbonizing, getting it right. Um, We're going to have to see the material upgrading of NDCs, or National Climate Plans. They need to cover the whole economy. They need to cover all global heating emissions, not just carbon dioxide. and they need to engage stakeholders in the process. And the interesting thing is that while you see some signals that the U.S. is behind the curve, right? We're making big promises, and then we're exporting more fossil fuels. Um, we're we're in favor of the loss and damage fund, but we give only seventeen point five million, despite the fact that on most days the United States is dealing with that level of loss and damage already. Um, But the US is advocating for these things very strongly and has helped to secure buy-in from oil exporting countries, from China on those standards for upgrading NDCs. That's a huge, huge step forward uh, that we all kind of have to keep in mind. And then we're gonna have to see the negotiation of new multilateral non-market cooperation agreements like the examples I just talked about. Um, And ultimately that means climate smart trade. It used to be that trade was taboo If you said trade in the context of climate, everybody said, whoa, 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 you're going to start a trade war and we're all going to have climate action shut down and it's just going to get worse. But it's become clear that until we wrangle these major instruments of the mainstream economy, including global trade, into alignment with Paris Agreement goals, we are not going to address climate change seriously. So trade is on the table is isn't just the U.S. talking about how we will respond to the border adjustment in Europe. Across the world, there is this recognition that border adjustment or not, we've got to figure out how trade is a solution. Um, And then finally, you've seen on the screen throughout uh, this, at the bottom, climate value exchange, Um, this is something that we started in response to the sort of mixed outcome from the COP recognizing that the world needs to move forward on these complex multilateral arrangements, embrace complexity and get moving on the climate transformation in a way that uh, really countries and institutions are just still not fully prepared for. Um, and so you know, with all the humility that we need to bring to it, we decided that we're going to work with partners to build a network of networks to convene finance ministers, public development banks, municipalities, innovators, scientists, experts, philanthropies to sit down together and start figuring out how these types of cooperative arrangements can move forward. Um, So the real outcome of the COP28, for all the different things you see in headlines, is that there is now a huge expansion of Activity around the world towards this goal of multi level, meaning local, national, international, um, multi dimensional, meaning not just energy, but also transport and manufacturing and trade and shipping, uh, food systems, et cetera, cooperation to get the job done. Um, and even while you see countries that export oil like the UAE and the United States doing doing some things to bulk up their uh, resources in the short term, those same countries are now putting more and more money into the green economy, uh, especially at home, but also in international supply chains. And so that's something to pay attention to and recognize that whatever else people are saying, and with this so-called doomerism where it's too late, everything is failing, we're never going to solve it, is dead, all those things that we hear people saying, I think that across the political spectrum, it's still true that the best future for the United States, as for any country, is going to be one where it figures out how to be a leader in the climate-smart economy. Because not doing that is not about the choice between oil and solar panels, not becoming a leader in the climate smart economy is about the choice between having an economy that works in a climate smart way and an economy that is hemorrhaging trillions of dollars a year in waste and destruction because it was badly planned and is not capable of dealing with the disrupted world that we're coming into. Um, So
0: I'll stop there. Bravo. Well, please join me in giving a huge round of applause for your leadership and just that great summary, Joe. It was wonderful just to get a a glimmer and insight into all the amazing work that you and the CCI team have been up to. Well, we are grateful for you. And the beautiful thing, the symbiotic uh, connection between CCI and CCL, Joe, is that we get to learn from and be inspired by what is working internationally and how our own domestic efforts are connected inextricably to the rest of the world. And then if you have any ongoing questions, we have a wonderful robust forum at cclusa.org forward slash forums. If there's anything that you have questions or dimensions on, like I know a couple just came up here right after Q&A, uh, we'd love to make sure to connect you to our international staff on that level. Um, But without further ado, I know we are at the top of the hour. We are so grateful for all of your time and input tonight. And we hope that you found tonight's training empowering and motivational as I did. And I'll unmute all lines so that we can close by just saying a huge thank you to you, Drew, with all of your leadership. Stay safe and have a wonderful night, everyone.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.